Welcome to the Inside Redemption Podcast. My name is Luke Simmons. It's great to have you with us today. I'm the executive pastor of Redemption Church and lead pastor of Redemption Church Gateway. And this is a podcast where we're trying to take you inside redemption, under the hood, behind the curtain, really give you insight into the people and the leaders that are helping shape Redemption Church and make it happen. And so uh, today we have Kirsten Trena. Kirsten is the director of Redemption's uh, Foster Care Kinship an adoption ministry, and I think it's going to be fun to learn from uh, you, Kirsten. So, Kirsten, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's awesome to have you. How many podcasts have you been a guest on in your life? This will be my second one. Your second one? Yes. How cool. Yes. What was your first one? Um, we did one for women's ministry when I was at Tempe. Oh, cool. Oh, yeah. Well, so you're a veteran. Oh, yes. yes You've done this a bunch. Yes, that's what I classify myself yeah. as. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you're I'm glad that you're here with us and um, a lot of our conversation is going to lead to kind of helping you help us understand this ministry and uh, it's a sprawling uh <laughs> changing, developing uh keep you on your toes kind of ministry and I want to get to that. I think just to talk through like what are some of the experiences of families that are engaged in foster care, kinship and adoption, what are the surprises? We'll talk about that sort of stuff. But I want to start, I think, just with your story, help people get to know you a little bit. So, Kirsten Trena, your maiden name was? Lockie. Lockie. Kirsten Lockie. And where did Kirsten Lockie grow up? I grew up in Bozeman, Montana, about 90 minutes north of West Yellowstone. My dad was a potter, so we took pottery into the park. So I grew up a lot in Yellowstone National Park. Wow. I've heard that West Yellowstone is just bananas. It's it is literally one of the coolest places. It's like the, the Grand Canyon, like you can't, it's beautiful. But for me, like I'm not a hiker really. So like I kind of look at it and it's like, okay, that was really pretty God. Um, but in Yellowstone, it is really interactive. And so you can hike, you can sit and enjoy things. There's tons of animals. Um, you drive from one side to the other. So it's amazing. It's nice in the summer, but the best time to go through Yellowstone is to snowmobile through the park. Wow, At that Christmas. sounds like a way to get eaten by some kind of wild animal. Well, they the ones that eat you hibernate in the <laughs> oh, winter. Oh, okay, good. So it's a lot safer. So, so your dad was a potter. Did so? Did that mean you did pottery as a kid? Yeah, no, no. My skill set revolves around Excel spreadsheets. Okay. So, yeah. So, if there ever is an art project, I would have to frame Excel. So, you would have been good at helping your dad figure out how to make sure his merchandise got sold in these places. Yes. And my but. dad was really, I got a lot from my dad. He used to time himself on how fast he could throw, like he would throw these little bells and he would time himself because for him, it was a way to raise money for his family. And so, the faster he could do them, the better he would get done. So, there is a little bit of OCD that translated into. So, he wasn't taking the time mostly to like, finely craft every little piece no he would i'm sure he had moments of that and it was beautiful he was cranking it out yeah it was production pottery Mm -hmm. wow interesting yeah so we did art shows when i was a kid traveled around the u.s we always i think a lot of us all three of my brother my two brothers and i all have own our own businesses okay i think a lot of the work ethic came from we would always go to disneyland but we would do an art show first so there was always i was eight or nine i could run art shows make change all that it was just a very Family. I mean, I guess you could do so that when you have two brothers. What order are you? So I'm the oldest. Okay. And then I have. That's a, what I was going to guess, but yeah, I didn't know. It's surprise. <laughs> um, I'm the oldest. Then my brother Josh is 18 months younger. My brother Tim is 18 months younger. And then I have a younger sister who's four years. She always tells me four years and 11 months younger than me. She's a, <laughs> she has a disability and okay. um, lives with my parents, but comes down here six months out of the year. And so. Wow. Yeah. So if you told me you grew up in Montana near Yellowstone with a pottery parent, mm-hmm. I would imagine you on some sort of hippie commune. 
you would totally like it sounds like that but it really, not like that it wasn't huh it was my dad's studio was in our backyard in the garage um and he did that so that i ran track in high school okay and um he was at every single meet i was at he timed everything except um the 400 i don't know if the 400 is the worst event on the it's planet a tough one yeah um and he would always hand off his stopwatch and go to the 300 meter mark and when I got to the 300 meter, he and I can whistle really loud and he would whistle because he would say, I want you to know that no matter how tired you are, you know, someone is on your side and he wow. would never see me finish, but he would all, because it was more important that he knew that I would know someone was cheering me on at the most difficult part of that race. Wow. So, yeah. That was my parents. That's, my parents that's incredible. Cool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. Is that kind of emblematic of, of your dad and your relationship with him? Yeah, my dad and mom, like he, when I got to college, um, he got an 800 number for the business okay. so that I could call my mom. He said, I, if I have to work harder <laughs> to pay for an 800 number, this is back in the day. So for the kids that don't yeah. know what 800 yes. numbers are. So that would be when you had to pay for long distance. It's very surprising. Right. Um, and you had to dial one to call a long distance number. But um, 800 number is free. 800 number is free. Free so, for the caller. For the caller. Yeah. So my dad, I went. To, I ran track in Nebraska. So I went to Nebraska to run track. And he said, I want your mom and you to have the best relationship. So if I have to work a little extra to get an 800 number so that you can call her anytime you want, I'll do that. And so, wow. yeah. So what was the spiritual temperature of your home growing up? Um, so I always kind of joke, I think I was born in a pew. I don't ever remember <laughs> a time that I didn't go to church. I don't remember accepting Christ as my savior. I have, I I do know you're that here I today as here a follower today of Jesus. As a follower of Jesus, yes. Whew, um, that was a but, close call. Yeah, <laughs> you're like, and now we're going to switch to talking about Jesus. Um, yeah, we always went. We were always involved in church. My dad was an elder. Um, I remember waking up every morning, coming downstairs. My mom would be doing her Bible study. She did Bible study fellowship. Um, that was the. That was just our family. That's what that was a huge part. And I, I was really always surprised at redemption when you guys talked at first, when I first started going about all of life is all for Jesus, because I didn't know that people didn't think that, mm. um, you could not talk to either of my parents about any, like literally any topic and have them not somehow talk about how God had impacted their lives. Like it's virtually impossible. It is like they will somehow just naturally Talk about what God's done. So it sounds like a very positive experience. Really positive. Yeah. I don't think that it was my experience till I got to college. Like I know that I was a believer. I know that it was important to me. Um, and it was ironically when I got to college, um, I was teaching Bible study fellowship. I was a, a children or a leader and it was in Romans and it was mm. <laughs> this whole thing. And then Tom was going through the, the Who, five points of who's Tom? Tom Schrader. The founding pastor of Redemption, but East Valley Bible Church okay. back then. Yes. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, and he was going through the five points of Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. Hold on. So you're doing BSF in college? Or you're saying When post? I moved here to Arizona. Sorry. When oh, I moved here okay. to Arizona. Yeah. Sorry. Gotcha. I did it through college. But then when I moved here to Arizona. And um, I'm- So you're now an adult. We'll come back to college. An adult in yeah. air quotes there. Right, right. Yeah. Young adult. Um, and you're young helping with BSF yeah. and listening to Tom Schrader. And listening to Tom. And Sorry, there we go. I'm sitting there going, I have never heard the doctrines of grace. Like this mm. can't be possible. I'm 30 years old and I've gone to church my whole life and I've never heard this. And I remember just being 
really upset and sitting down with someone and saying, I, I can't teach this. I don't, I don't believe it. Mm. And she's like, well, first of all, it doesn't matter what you believe. It's true. So that's strike one. And secondly, she said, you need to read Job 38 through 42. And I'm like, mm. oh, great. The guy who went through a lot of really hard stuff. Like, I don't know how this is going to help me. Yeah. And I remember where I, like, I can visually picture where I was sitting on the bed and, um, reading that and it was as if God was speaking to me and it was like you mm. sit down and you just listen and let's just hear what I have to say and it was I got done I'm like okay totally believe this this wow. is and it was it really did take God out of a box for me and mm. just give him this amazing and I think I would say definitely that it was at that point that everything that I had grown up with and everything I had ever heard gelled into oh this is who i am and this is what i believe mm, wow so yeah it's striking to me just to hear you talk about having that level of support oh yeah. in a family mm -hmm. and then thinking about what you do with foster care yeah mm -hmm. and thinking about you know I, i'd imagine that some people get into foster care because they've been a, a child in the foster yeah. care system or that was kind of part of their story and they want to help and they want to give back yeah. um, but it's interesting to me how some of that stability and strength yeah. and that positive and godly environment. Like, I wonder how the Lord, have you ever reflected on how oh. the Lord used that to prepare you for this kind of ministry? All the time. I think like I have always thought that, um, every job I've ever had was the job that prepared me for the job that God had next. Like I was mm. rarely in the job I was because that was only where I was supposed to be. It was always training for whatever God has next. Yeah. Um, when I grew up growing up in Montana, just in a lot of different areas, um, it's very white. I don't know if you're very familiar with that, but Montana is a pretty white state. Yep. And um, my parents would work really, really hard. Um, it's an agricultural college in Bozeman. And okay. so they would go and ask students from other countries to come spend holidays with us. Oh, wow. To come do that. So we had a, I mean, as diverse as Montana could be, my parents really made that a big hmm. part of it. Um, Why was that important to them? Do you have any idea? why wouldn't it be like if you ask them they're like well why wouldn't those people needed a place to have thanksgiving and we had extra food huh. and why wouldn't we all get together it was just a natural part of their life following so the lord natural when i was yeah. 16 my dad decided um he was listening to a radio show and he heard about john perkins um okay. and he decided john perkins is a pastor, pastor a yeah, community development civil guy rights, civil like rights, huge yeah. thing out of and he owned he ran a community center called the harambee center out of pasadena yeah and my dad called him and said hi we're coming for spring break and he's wow. like don't come and my dad was like no you don't understand we're coming we will come we will do anything you want we will mow your lawn we will he's do like, here's what i want you to do yeah. don't come yeah don't come <laughs> sorry we're coming not anyway. to go and <laughs> i don't know like where we went i still remember going mm. this is i don't know that it was a super safe place that we were um but my dad didn't really care because yeah. we were going to serve and we spent a week at the harambee center wow. with john perkins just I, it's it's very you you ask what god had done i learned a cornrow hair oh wow and i look at that and i'm like now that's what i do with my daughter yeah. you know every couple months and wow i just they just were like this is what we do god's called us to serve this mm. is how we do this and that's so awesome. That was kind of wow, but, yeah. And then, so, so you went from Bozeman to Nebraska, yes, to run. I ran track. Did you run the four hundred in college, or what? I ran the four and the eight, but I don't know that you could classify it as running because <laughs> everybody I ran with was preparing for the ninety two Olympics. Like, okay, so it was a it was a little different level than I don't know Montana track and field. Um, I felt a little bit like the rabbit in front of you know racing animals, except um, for. 
You weren't in front for very long. I was it not. It was like, like, let me get you out of the starting gate, then I will pull over so you don't <laughs> all crush me. Um, a couple of my teammates won medals in the Olympics in wow. 92. Okay. Um, but again, it was the way that God got me to the place that he got me for the thing that I was doing for the thing that I was doing next. Yeah. And so it was... Did you run all four years? I ran two. I was paying my way through college. Okay. And so working full time, going to school and running track. And that's wow. one of those things kind of has to go. And the one that you're probably not doing well at should, you know, maybe be the one you push aside. Yeah, seems like good. Yeah. It was wise. That was a little bit of wisdom. And so I... Um, for four years, I got my degree. I was one credit short. Ironically, the class I failed in college was a health class where all I had to do was go to the track workout. And I failed that class because I never turned in the paperwork. So oh, man. I was one short credit of graduating in December. And so I had to take another like full load of credits. And I had gotten a job at a photocopy shop because they paid back in the day, $8 an hour was okay. a great minimum or great wage. Yeah. And I don't know, photocopying papers eight hours a day is really close to it's I mean it's awful and so I went back to the athletic department to my academic advisor because I was like he's got to have something I can do like I'll do anything at this point and he had been promoted to the assistant athletic director in charge of academics okay who needed an admin and okay. so I was like okay I can admin like I just proved I can photocopy things and <laughs> so like, but you do have to turn everything in and I will do this <laughs> um so I did that for a year and I had to write out you were in athlete college I was did you have grade cards where they sent cards to your teachers to find out how you were doing to make um, sure everybody was passing classes maybe okay so well probably and Nebraska I don't know. they do because you know they have a 70 percent graduation rate of football players they want to make sure they maintain that so they, I had to handwrite every card out for five classes oh, for wow. every college athlete. And I was like, this is so dumb. Like there has to be a computer science engineer that could come up with a program for this. Right, sure. So I had a friend who did and he oh, came wow. up with it and I cut my workload in half and proved that they would want to hire me, I guess, for something else. Wow, cool. So I graduated and became a, I got a degree in special ed, elementary ed, special ed, deaf ed. And um, went to grad school, and they hired me to work with high at risk athletes for grad school. Oh, wow. So I worked with football and basketball. I traveled with men's basketball at Nebraska. Kind of um, helping, kind of mm -hmm. guide and shepherd, and yep. maybe a little bit of tutoring and just yeah. kind of helping people. A lot of make learning strategies. Because if you are a division at Nebraska in the 90s, if you were a Division one football player, you're not an idiot. Like you may not learn how everybody else does, but there's no way you can play on that level and right. know you're going to go to the NFL and be an idiot. And so, um, it was just tapping into their strengths and yep. teaching learning strategies. And so it was, it was, it was the most fun job I've ever When Nebraska had. was good then. Nebraska, we have four national not, championships. Not anymore, was, but no, but, but it was fun. a delightful cool. couple of years. So then, um, when you work at Nebraska and you have a job that is, is a good job, um, you can pretty much write your ticket somewhere. Okay. And so I had a lot of job offers and. Is that um, what brought you to Arizona? It was. So I worked at ASU. Okay. Um, a lot less with high at risk, like some a little bit, but mostly an academic advisor. Okay. So. Wow. Yeah. So, and it was coming to ASU. How did you end up uh, being part of ASU and ending up at East Valley Bible Church? Um, this is so fun. So I was an academic advisor for the men's baseball team. Well, men's baseball team, because that's who is baseball. So the baseball uh -huh. team. Yep. Um, and uniquely enough, Tyler Johnson and Brian Berger were athletes on that team. Yep. And so they were students that I didn't really have to academically advise them much. They did quite well on their own. Um, 
but Tyler used to always invite me to this church he went to. And I'm like, what's the name of it? And he's like, East Valley Bible Church. And I'm like, that's the dumbest name of a church. I don't even know where the East Valley is. And he kept inviting me. And I ended up going to their college group. Okay. And it was incredibly impactful. And I actually, what got me starting uh, to, to attend East Valley was um, the pastor that taught the the college group was telling about this incredible person who had just passed away and all the things that he had done. And I was so overwhelmed by what I heard. I actually went to his funeral. Oh, wow. Um, and I sat in the back. It was this Mike Notham. This is a person Notham. you didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know anything about it. It was Mike Notham Sr. Wow. And I just sat and I listened to people. And who, so for people without that history, yeah. um, Mike Notham Sr. was a real influential guy mm-hmm. in the yeah. early days of East Valley Bible Church. Yeah. A lot of his generosity paved the way for the, the physical campus even yeah. now that Redemption Gilbert has. Um, yeah, yeah I, I don't know all the, I don't remember all the details of that story, but I know that, yeah. you know, Mike Notham in that kind of legacy of Redemption Gilbert yeah. is a big name. Yeah. And, and that was the thing that was overwhelming. So I'm sitting in this funeral and I mean, you gotta be kind of a little bit odd to go to someone's funeral that you don't know. Sure. Um, wow. but it just so touched me on what he'd done. And I sat in this funeral and I just heard people stand up that had been sent from the countries that he had helped and said, you know, this is what he did. He planted this church. He did this. And it was just tons of people. And then places that his wife didn't know that he had helped. And I was just wow. like, if that's what this church represents, then I want to, I want to go here. So. Wow. That's yeah. really interesting. Yeah. So my introduction to East Valley was at a funeral. Yeah. So, How about yeah. that? So um, you've had a lot of different jobs, yeah. right? You've worked as a church admin yeah. in a few different kind of environments. Yeah. Um, but one of the ones that I think is the most interesting that I want to talk a little bit about before we get into some of the foster care stuff is, uh, is the restaurant world. Oh yes. My other so job. tell us about that. So, um, I, at the church we were at, I volunteered, they did like dinners for new people. And I was like, well, I know how to carry food. Like I waited tables through college. I so do you know that that's where I first met you? What is that? At, really? At Walter's house? At Walter's house. Really? So Walter who had, was that yeah. college pastor had planted a church and I was coming down to visit Tyler. I okay. knew him from baseball and, uh, Molly and I were about to get married. We were like a month away from getting married. We're thinking about moving down here to Phoenix and we were staying at that house and okay. there was, the church was having this big newcomer yeah. dinner. Yeah. Dave cooked. Yep. I think you guys were relatively newly married. I had, this you, would have been like 2000, 2001. One. I had, I met him that night. You I met him that night? I met him before. Huh? Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So okay, I so yeah, night I, I met Dave. Yeah, well, I guess he made a bigger impression, which is probably good because I was engaged <laughs> at that point. But yeah, uh, yeah I, I remember he made like skirt steak, yeah. and it was like, this yeah. is the newcomer dinner. Yeah, yeah, like, there's right? steak at this thing. I want to come here. So yeah. he, anyway, uh, no, so it was so I helped serve. He was doing dinner. Um, okay, I had offered to help. Like I just, I don't really think twice. I'm like, hey, can I help? And yeah. so he said, can you cut up these mushrooms? And I was like, well, yeah, it's a knife and it's mushrooms. How hard can that be? And so I used his chef's knives um, to cut up mushrooms on a granite countertop without a cutting board. So um, that's how much he likes me because he actually then asked me out. So that was good. Well, it it wasn't his wasn't his countertop. Yeah, that so. is true. Yeah. And he's like, well, I'll cook. I'm never going to I'll cook anyway. You can find you make Excel spreadsheets. Um, and so he. um I asked him, this is, a, this connects you too. I asked him 
for the recipe of something he had made. It had like an apricot sauce on it, I think it was. Okay. And um, I said, I want to make it for my friend Andy. And he's like, oh, okay, yeah. And then he changed the subject. And I was like, well, no, can I get that recipe? I want to make it for my friend Andy. And he's like, yeah, okay. And then he changed the subject. And I said, my friend Andy's my roommate. She is da-da-da-da-da. And it's Brooke Burns' sister. Oh, okay. Andy. And he's like, oh, Andy's a girl. And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, yeah, here's the recipe. And so he wouldn't give me the recipe to make it for some other guy. But when he found out That's Andy awesome. was a girl, yeah. That's so. really funny. So yeah. so Dave's your husband. Dave's my husband. And he's a yep. chef. And you guys have been yep. married how long now? Uh, Not in 2001. Years. I got that wrong. <laughs> 19 years. Yeah. Okay. We got engaged. Um under the tree at Rockefeller in New York. Wow. Um, the Christmas after September 11th. Okay. So it wow. was a really wild, wild time. So um, married 19 years. And so tell us about the restaurant that you guys own. So we Kate, we started a catering company through that getting plugged in dinner. Cause everybody was getting like you were, everybody was getting married. So we figured we could probably cater weddings. Mm -hmm. We catered our own. Don't do that. That's dumb. Hire <laughs> someone. Um, but we, were approached then um, we used to when we go to East Valley we would drive downtown Gilbert and we would drive by the Liberty Market which was a, a market at that point and we would just say whoever gets that building better not screw it up yeah like it was kind of like a rundown it was a conven convenience, like convenience store, store. yeah um, but pretty beat up totally beat up but great bones like you're looking at it going man and we would say whoever gets that better not screw it up well in that time I mean if I remember right you had Joe's Farm Grill mm -hmm. downtown you had the little farmhouse restaurant, the, the breakfast place. Yep. Um, and then across from Joe's Farm Grill, where Postino is Joe's now. Joe's Grill Barbecue. Yes, yes. Yeah, not Joe's Grill Barbecue. Barbecue. The barbecue. Yep. Across from there was Postino. They where Postino even, yeah. is, it was this Gonzo's. like every eight months a new restaurant would come in and fail. Yep. Yep. Nothing would last. No. And I feel like the thing that really changed downtown yep. Gilbert was Liberty Market. Yeah. Well, and because it kind of I remember people would ask like we Joe Johnston had approached us and said would you guys like to do a restaurant together and I remember again meeting with Tom Schrader and just saying Dave and I met with him and we're like what do you think and he said if it wasn't Joe I would tell you to go find Joe and do it with him hmm. and so that was that was kind of where it it kind of connected and Dave and I have very different skill sets like Dave's very much when we opened he was back of the house so the kitchen component of that and I was front of the house so serving paperwork and stuff like that and so we work really well together. I People ask, when I left the restaurant, they asked, you know, was it really hard to leave? And I was like, the hardest thing was I didn't get to see Dave every day. Like, that was mm. the hardest piece of not being in the restaurant, was not working with him every day. Um, but we decided to open a restaurant. We did everything. And we, you know, we, it was 2005. Great time to open a restaurant. Like, yeah. everything's great. People are flush with cash. Everything's great. Nothing on the horizon looming. Um and then we opened between the two worst days of the stock market in 2008. So October 14th, 2008 was when we opened. And wow. um, that was a little daunting. I spent a lot of years thinking we were closed every day. Mm. Um, but I think, like, I would never recommend, like, hey, wait until there's a recession and then open a business. Like, that is, that's probably not the best model of doing something. Um, but you, from a Christian perspective, like you got nothing but God to get you through. Like it, you spend tons of time in prayer because you're like really rather desperate at that point. Um, but then also you can't just be stupid. Like people in America are going to eat out. Like the, eating out is sure. like a national pastime. And so you just need to make sure that you do a really good job. So at the restaurant we do, we were like, how do we, you know, like if you go somewhere and they're like, we have 14 points we want to walk you through as a new employee. Remember all these where you're like, 
don't know. There's 14 of them. I don't know what they are. Um, But we were like, we can narrow everything down into two points. And they are passion for the food, serve from the heart. Mm. And all of those come from, for us, from a biblical component. Like we can say, you know, we do things out of excellence. God calls us to do things out of excellence. And then um, serving from the heart. Like if we, I can't, I don't, I don't have a lot of employees that are believers. Like that's just not there, but I can serve them and I can care for them somewhere deeper than just, Hey, let me write you a paycheck. And so, um, those are the two things and we can take everything back to that. So if, Mm. if two people are having a hard time, we can go back and say, Hey, you know, you guys serve each other from the heart or tables from the heart. Sure. So I have a kind of a weird question. Um, that I didn't tell you. I mean, I, I haven't really told you anything I'm going to ask. So surprise, surprise. But um, is Liberty Market a Christian restaurant? Liberty Market is run by Christians, but it is everything else. Um, and I love that piece about it because my job at the restaurant is to love and care like Jesus. Yeah. And it doesn't, I don't get to, God doesn't call me to pick and choose who I love and who I care for. So I don't, get to pick and say, Oh, no, no. Yep. Yep. And so there's, I I think that's my favorite part is just being able to, it's my favorite part and the hardest part because I'm not a very good, like you're a witness. Everybody says you're a witness all the time. Um, sometimes I'm a really sucky witness. Can I Hmm. say sucky? Uh That's pretty much, um, I don't do a good job. Um, That's what a, that's what a bad witness would say is they would say they were a sucky witness. (laughs) Oh, there we go. There we go. Um, but it, it lets me be convicted of my sin and care for people as well. And so it's, it's so your faith a, is, you know, undoubtedly shaping and informing and directing the way you guys operate the restaurant. Yeah. But I, I, I asked the question partly because I think it's funny anytime people describe inanimate things as Christian, yeah, right? Like music or yeah. a restaurant or a movie or it's like, well, <laughs> did the restaurant, repent of its sins and believe in Jesus, you know, but, but I do think to say like, no, we're operating it from that perspective, but Um, but I'm, but I'm sure you have a number of people who work with you and vendors and customers and employees and lots of folks who would not just not be Christian, but might even oppose it. Yeah. Antagonistic. Absolutely. And, uh, and so you, you know, you have the opportunity to live Mm -hmm. uh, as a believer in that environment. And my expectation is none of that on them. Like I think that frees them up to be who they are um, and frees me to be up who I, to frees me up to be who I am. Um, I just know that, that I get to check that somewhere. Like I have a calling, I have what I'm supposed to do. And so um, I think I just, I like that because I like, you and I've talked about this before. I like messy, like Mm -hmm. my whole life has been, with messy people, me included. And I think there's a beauty in that because sometimes what I've seen in the church is this facade of I'm fine. I'm great. Everything's good. And it's like, well, you probably aren't like, you're probably pretty messy. Um, and so when that's stripped away and people are messy, like it's so much easier to have conversations with, cause you're not having to like mince around the, are you messy? It's like, Oh yeah, you straight up are. Okay. This is great. Me too. Right. So I like that. So my oldest daughter, Abby, um, occasionally will mention that she would like someday to start a, a breakfast restaurant Ah, yes. because, uh, you know, I like to make breakfast on the weekends and, you know, she says she would feature my recipes, which uh, (laughs) sounds like a really boring restaurant. But, um, if you were giving Abby or anyone starting a restaurant, couple pieces of like hey here's some advice do this don't do this keep this in mind what would you say 
I would say, well, okay, pray about it a lot. And that's not a pat answer because there's so much to it. Um, but then I would say, get a job in it, like, and get a job doing different pieces of it. Because I think a lot of people who want to re- open a restaurant want to open a restaurant from sitting in a booth <laughs> where someone's brought sure. them their food. And we do a, a really fun, I think it's really fun, but it's the teacher and me. We do recon- restaurant economics 101 with our new staff. Oh, wow. And everybody gets 100 pennies. And then over the course of the next 15 minutes, we break down 100% of sales and they have to give me back the pennies. And when you get done, I would love to go through that. It's really fun. Can I come sometime? Totally can. can I come sit in? Yeah, we'll do a little, we'll do an after hours restaurant economics. I think everyone should go through restaurant economics so that they realize that just because yeah. there's a lot of people in there yeah. doesn't necessarily, that means I have to buy more food and pay more people to work. Right. Um, but we do that with our younger staff because there is this perception that there's a ton of people in there. I bet you guys are just rolling in the cash. Right. Um, and there's a lot of, Cost. Have you ever gone to a restaurant and one of your kids spills something and they bring you a stack of napkins and it's like 45 napkins? Mm-hmm. So if you price out that many napkins per family, per hour, per shift, like per spill, per spill like it gets really expensive. So we talk to our staff. That's what I'm like, going to tell Hank next time. Mm-hmm. Hank, you're bankrupting this restaurant. <laughs> so expensive. You Don't need- spill your cup. <laughs> so but we will talk with our staff about, hey, use half as many napkins or whatever. And so I would tell your girls, okay. like the thing to do is to sit down and kind of have a realistic view of, of what it looks like and what it costs. Um, it seems to me like opening a restaurant's a great way to go broke. Yeah. Dave always jokes about if people want to come to him and consult, like, Hey, we want to open a restaurant. He'll be like, awesome. I can consult for a hundred thousand dollars. And so what we're going to do is we're going to sit down. I'm going to tell you not to do it. And I'm going to give you $90,000 back <laughs> and then I'll be $10,000 richer and you'll be a million dollars richer eventually. Um, <laughs> because it does like the restaurant business is amazing and it really is good, but it's really, it's really hard. Dave just got Saturdays and Sundays off um, so that we could spend time together as a family. And the first two weekends that he has those off, he has to work both days mm. because it's really hard to find staff right now. And that is, it, it depends on your model, but our model is that, you know, we will pitch in and help if there's, if there's a shortage. Um, and so it is, it's really hard. It's, they always joke, the things you love about a restaurant are the people and the weather and the climate and the, all these things and the things you hate and the food and the thing you hate about the restaurant are the people and the climate and the food. It's all, Hmm. it's all the same. Yeah. But I, it sounds like I, I love the restaurant business. It's the most amazing thing ever. Yeah. What's been fun as a friend and as a fan to kind of follow Mm -hmm. how it's going and, you know, some of the different iterations of it. And, you know, uh, we could do a whole another conversation about what you've learned through COVID and the restaurant and (laughs) we'll we'll skip that for another time. So, but, but so, so you're working in the restaurant. How, how do you go from there into what you're doing now, uh, which, you know, you do this part time. You're not full time with Redemption Foster Care Kinship and Adoption, but there's a lot to do and yeah. you could, you know, there's a lot of work you do. How, how did you move into that arena? So, um, I, I knew that the church, like redemption was, or was East Valley back then was starting to look at going, there was a huge foster care crisis. We were up around 21,000 kids in the system. It was really awful. Um, and redemption mission church and Hillsong, it was city of city of grace back then. I think, mm-hmm. um, all those three pastors got together and said, this is what the church is called to do. Like we're called to care for the orphan and the widow and to care for the vulnerable. And so it makes a ton of sense for us to put something together. So they began to work and they started an organization called Arizona 127. And it's a coalition of churches. They provide 
um, just a toolbox for churches to be able to run ministries to engage in the foster care crisis. And um, I knew that Redemption was leaning into that. And so I sent Tyler an email, a text and I just said, hey, how can I pray for this for you? And he had just said, you can just pray for a director. You know, we need someone to direct this at Redemption or at East Valley. And I did a lot of like fundraising in colleges for having kids come or like, you know, just we could raise money. And mm -hmm. so I had written him an email and just said, Hey, I can raise it. I think if you pay it, you'll find someone a little bit more likely that will stick around because, because it's hard. I think people there, it's a pull towards something else. I think it's a spiritual battle as well. And so I think there's always a pull against it. And so um, I said, I'm so, like, I wrote out a business plan on how to raise the money. There were seven redemption churches. Here's how we could get this amount. And he sent me an email back and I read it to my husband. I'm like, Hey Dave, Tyler wants me to raise the money. Listen to this email. And <laughs> so I read the, I pull the email up and I said, I just have one question. Do you want the job? And I'm like, Oh, he's not talking about the money raising. <laughs> he wants to know if I want this job. Um, and that's not an easy step into. We had just adopted our daughter. Our daughter was six months old. Um, I always thought my mom was a stay-at-home mom. I'm like, and you oh. had not adopted her out of foster care. No, we had done a private adoption. So yeah. you didn't necessarily have specific life no. experience with foster I, care system. Not, not really at all. I have adoption in my family, like a lot of adoption, private adoption in my family. Yeah. Um, but it was, it really was. There are some people where this is absolutely their heart is just drawn to this. Um. I think God pulls my heart to caring for people and he manifests that in different jobs. Every job I've had has been a caring for people job. Mm. And so, um, so he, he says, Hey, why don't you, why don't you be this person? Yeah. And I'm like, Oh, that I, like, I don't even know what you're doing. He's, and I sent him a text. I said, Tyler, I am a mom, a wife and a restaurant owner. Like, what do you have an expectation? He goes, I don't care when, where, or how you do this job. You just figure out what works. And so I told him, I said, I'll uh, give me a month. I'll tell you on my birthday, January 6, 2013, I'll yes or no. I said, but pray for a month. I'll, I'll do it. Um, and so Jim Mullins at Tempe taught on January 5th. I remember it's so clear to me. Um, and it was how to know God's call on your life. Oh, wow. And I don't really remember how you know God's call on your life from that sermon. Like I just <laughs> remember that was the title. And so when I got done, I met, I went up to him. I said, Jim, what do you do if you don't know what, if you should do what you think God's like, I don't know that God's calling me to do this. How do you know? I said, it's not like opening a coffee shop on the beach somewhere. That's super easy. And I said, it's like you're signing up for total brokenness. And Jim looked at me and as only Jim can with Jim's questions was, has God done anything in your life to prepare you for this job? And it mm. was, and I called Tyler that night because I was like every, like everything that was on, you had talked about, unrelated things being connected together. And it was like everything fit into this perfection of puzzle piece that was like, wow, this is exactly, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how it's going to work, but everything I've ever done has prepared me for this. Wow. And so you were called into it. And from there, it all just went amazing. Yeah. It's so eat like, Oh my gosh, it's just, you know, I sleep really well at <laughs> night. There's no problems. Um, so, so you've been in the role then now you since 2013, 2013. Yeah. So eight years. Yep. So you've seen additional redemption congregations yep. mm -hmm. have different ministries. You've had some influence in helping some of our congregations that aren't in Maricopa County yep. uh, do this ministry. Um, give us maybe like a like a sixty second snapshot of here's redemption, foster care, kinship, and adoption ministry. There's what it cue is. music, and then here it is. Yeah. 
Um, so we believe that fam- that kids need families, families need support. That's the truth of that. And I think what happens in a lot of ministries is that we tell people to go get kids and they enter foster care and they're like, well, good job, good luck. We have no idea what to do with you now. And so there is tons of trauma. There's tons of brokenness, all of that. And so what the first part is, is mobilizing families to become foster and adoptive families. So that's all across redemption where we'll put an orientation on that the state requires and multiple congregations will attend that. Um, and we work closely with Arizona 127 that, on that. And so then once families become licensed, then within those individual congregations that have elect, that have a space for that, we put together support groups and a support system for them there. Okay. Um, and it's very, um, it's very set in stone, like here are the things that you need to do, and then very fluid in, but how you do it is a little bit different because every congregation, it's fascinating, covers a different component yeah. of foster care, kinship, and well, adoption. Well, let's maybe, to shape our conversations, let's kind of take those two mm-hmm. things of, you know, um, kids need families, families need support. So if we go, kids need families, um, what, uh, how would you describe, is there a typical um, foster family in redemption? No, there's, it, every single family is different um, and different needs and different ways and different reasons. Um, when we look at kids need families, kids end up in the system for a variety of reasons. Um, I was talking to a pastor and I just said, you know, if something were to happen to Dave and me, the level of nets to catch Nicolina would be mm. astronomical. It would be family, it would be friends, it would be church. It would be like the, the bottom net is always the state. In it'd be, it'd be hard for her to end up in the it, system. It would be really like if she ended up in the system and because something happened to us, they put her there while well, they found one of the 7 million nets yeah. that she would end up in. Um, and so what happens is as families don't have those nets, if they don't have family that can take a kid or they live in a different state or they've left a spouse or something like that, the lack of nets leaves you with the foster care net at the bottom. And Mm. it is a way to protect kids. And it's, it is a really good system because kids don't end up in, you know, still on the street, like they might somewhere else. Um, But at the same time, it's not how, I mean, family, God created families. Like that's what the world is that his perfection would be that a mom and a dad and their kids like that would be it. But when that doesn't happen, foster care, kinship and adoption is God's provision yeah. for that brokenness. And so with the state, God calls us to care. James one twenty seven talks about caring for the orphans and the widows. Mm-hmm. And so that's what the church is called to do. We are, we are set up to care on a level that no one else is set up to care for. Yeah, I just find the theology even of adoption, you know, that God doesn't just, like, forgive us in a legal sense. He definitely does that, but he also adopts us and makes us his children, right? And I love that quote. I think it's by Matt Smethurst that the gospel changes heaven's courtroom from, you know, a legal trial to an adoption ceremony. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I just think that's like, yeah, that's totally what the heart of the gospel is. So I remember when we were making a big push and getting the ministry started and, uh, having lots of orientations and um, I don't think this ever got said, but I think just the inertia of that kind of thing makes some people feel like everyone must yeah. do foster care. Like yeah. if I, if I'm a real, it's James one twenty seven, And if I'm a real <laughs> Christian and the heart of the gospel is adoption and, and like, and yet I, I know you and I would both say, well, no, yeah. right. Not everyone's called to this yeah. in the same way yeah. um, or at all. So, um, if there's someone listening who's going like, I'm trying to figure that out yeah. and I have enough 
in me that's like, well, it's if it's hard to do, it's probably God's will. And if it's costly, I, I probably should do it. And who else is gonna like, how, how do you discern? Like, how, how would you coach someone to go, hey, maybe this is something you should do yeah. or to say, you really shouldn't do this yeah. and feel free to not do this. Yeah. Where I've seen it fall apart is people who have the mentality that I'm supposed to go get a kid. I'm supposed to do this. And this is what I'm supposed to do. And no matter how hard it is, this is what I'm supposed to do. Um, I had someone once ask me, well, you, sh- I, I, my wife wants to do it. I will do it too. You show me in the Bible. It tells me where I'm supposed to take a kid. And I'm like, okay, first of all, don't ever do this. Like <laughs> this is, please don't, this is not what it is because the, the Bible doesn't tell us to go foster a child and bring a child into our home. He says, care for the orphans and widows. And I think the beauty in that is that the freedom is that God calls you, you got to do something. Like, Mm -hmm. you got to do something. He's not letting you just sit out there going, hey, we got a problem, I'm not doing anything. But the scope of how you can help is massive. And so um, there are lots, like, I am not, like, I own a restaurant and I know how to cook, but I am not a bring you a meal person. Like, I just, like, I forget things like the whole thing. Um, but I know that what I can do is give you a gift card from the restaurant and provide a meal that way. That's my way to care for you. Mm. It, it fits in my wheelhouse. And there are people who God is uniquely and creatively made to bring kids into their home and to love on kids in the capacity that he provides for them. It doesn't mean that he makes it easy for those families. It is, it is really hard. It's Mm -hmm. full of brokenness, but he enables them to do that. But then he enables families who have resources to provide resources for those families. Sure. Or um, I remember with Molly and I when we were, you know, because we were doing that as a church, and, yeah. going, and it was like, hey, speed of the leader, speed of the team. Like right. I better go through the orientations and do yeah. the thing. And is this something God's calling us to? And um, and a lot of people we talked to would kind of say, well, what's the biggest need? We want to meet the biggest need. And I would kind of go like, I don't think you do because if you did, you'd probably end up with like fifteen year olds. Yeah in the foster care system, but, but people go, what's the biggest need? And I, and I kind of, at some point realized, you know what? I don't think that's the right question. I think the big, the right question, at least for us is what's the biggest need we can meet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which I know there's a certain kind of person who go, well, that's just a cop out. That's just a way to get yourself out of it. And, and I hope that's not what was going on in my heart, mm-hmm. but I do think that's a, that's an important question. And um, the challenge with it is it requires discernment, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. It's just easier to kind of go, well, everyone should do this, yeah. you know? Um, but it really does require some discernment. So what are some signs, you know, if you're talking with someone and you go like, what, what are some signs that this might be something the Lord's really yeah. inviting them into? I think like the wisest thing is people will come up to me. It's like the restaurant. I've always wanted to open a restaurant. Like, okay, then let's talk about that with kids. I've always. Is there like a hundred pennies version of how to figure out adoption. if you should do foster care? <laughs> it's, not, it, it's a little, no. That would be a lot easier. It it really is hard. And it it is people that come up and say, you know, I've really had adoption on my heart for a long time. I've really thought about fostering. My family did this when I was a kid. Um, and so what we just really try and tell them is that we walk you through the process. Like there's a set of classes that we offer. There's three or four classes I can send you through that we tell you, like I tell people, like we're not giving you a child at the end of any of these classes. Like that's not a parting gift. Um, but sit through the orientation and hear like our orientation is called finding your place in foster care. And what it enables you to do is we have a court appointed special advocates, CASAs there 
That is a great way to get connected. We have mentors there. We have foster parents who are just saying, I don't want you to take another kid. I need you to help me mm. in this capacity. Um, and so you see a variety of ways that you can serve. And then you finish that class. And then we say, take the second class. It's a basic training. It goes into what it's like to be a foster or adoptive or a kinship family. Um, it's a six-hour class. That's if, if you have a hard time committing to the six-hour class, you're going to have a hard time committing to bringing a child into your home. Sure. Um, and so we just like go through those because even at the end of these classes, and one of them is a trauma class, which first of all, just teaches you a lot about yourself. And then you're like, this is genius. Mm. Um, but when you get done, you're like, okay, I have a better scope of now what the conversation is. Yeah. Now I'm not asking myself questions I don't know anything about. Now I can, like you had said, now I can ask the questions I need to be asking. Well, what I love about that is that even the orientation is built around, we want to help you figure out what God's calling you to. Yeah, It's not built around, come to this thing so that we can guilt you into doing yeah. this hard thing. Yeah. And, um, so I, I just really appreciate that. And I, and I love that, um, you know, what we're saying is we want to walk with people through that whole process of yeah. discernment, um, and really provide resources, provide, you know, connections with other people yeah. that'll make it where if someone goes ahead and, and heads down that road, they have much more of an opportunity to be successful yeah. with it and to enjoy it and to endure it. Yeah. Um, I think that's the biggest thing we talk about. Like there there are two things we see. You see, um, if you're in foster care, kinship, and adult, if you're a parent, at some point in time, you're going to be a family in crisis. Like sure. something's going to happen. If nothing happens, something's happening. Um, but like going through that and saying, we know this is true, but then you also have crisis families and we want to prevent those crisis families. And by going through classes and by meeting with people and asking the questions and being willing to have people ask the questions of you and get to that heart thing, that's when we have, we don't have those crisis families. It doesn't mean there aren't problems. It doesn't mean it's not hard, but you go into it with your eyes open, um, and you, you know it's going to be hard, but you have a, a group of people that can walk alongside you. Yeah. So kids need families, and then families need support. So that's what a lot of our ministry does. And and the interesting thing here is it's not like you, Kirsten Trana, have a centralized redemption support group. Right. What you've done is created some kind of systems and foundational principles and yep. ideas to help congregations develop ways to support families that yeah. are going through that. Yeah. So um, maybe give us a little bit of a, and, and like you said earlier, different congregations do it differently. A lot of that depends on the stage of yeah. development of those congregations and the families and the needs, yeah. right? Some congregations, I think the folks being supported are way more in foster care. Others are way more they've already adopted yeah. or their, um, you know, a kinship situation, which maybe just explain quickly what that is. Yeah. A kinship situation is going to be like if a kid hits that net and they need to go somewhere because they've been removed from their parents for a period of time. Um, it's a family that they know. It could be a relative. They really want, we really want to keep kids in with their family, like with a family member. Um, but sometimes if a family member can't be found, but they have a good friend, mm -hmm. that child will go with that friend so that they have the least amount of disruptions. It's already So this is almost like I wasn't looking to get involved in foster care, but yeah. I'm connected to a family where a foster need was no, right. like, yep uncovered and now I'm in it. Yeah. And yeah. a lot of times it will be, you know, grandparents or aunts and uncles and that sort of thing. And sure. that's something that's a unique piece too, because with that comes the brokenness of your children. Like I have my children's children 
or of my sister's children. And so the family brokenness has touched me in different ways. Yeah. And so that's an area that, that we talk a lot about too on how we support a different level of, of support and care as well. Yeah. So you talked about there's kind of the, the rock solid parts mm-hmm. of support and yeah. then the more fluid parts. Yeah. What are some of the, the rock solid pieces of of what's important to support uh, families? They're pretty, they're, we do a support group and that's, that's the piece of that. And within that support group, it has, the congregation has to come to me and say they're ready for it. What we found, I mean, a lot of trial and error because I didn't know exactly what I was doing. So there were things I really did wrong when we started and things we've changed and grown and learned. And, but one of the big things is me going to church and telling a church, here's what you need to do. You have to do this it, it's not born of them. And so the ownership is mine. The ownership mm. isn't theirs. Yeah. And so we wait. And a lot of foster care, kinship, and adoption is waiting. It's just waiting for, and the beauty of it, man, this is the most amazing thing, is that with this, God's working so much in the background, even for our experience with our daughter, the things that happen in the background before she became our daughter are so tangible. It's not even like, oh, I think I see God's fingerprint. It's like, oh, dear Lord, he's everywhere on mm. that. Um, and so waiting is a part of what you see in that. And mm. so when a church is ready, a church is ready. And so we're like, oh, great. Okay, here you go. Here's your little packet. And we sit down. Um, every church has what we call um, a redemption partner. It's the person who heads the ministry up. Um, it's a volunteer position. And then they have a group of people that help them called active volunteers. It's a lot easier with a lot of people. It's really hard with one person because there's a lot of pieces. Um, a lot of our families that lead that are also in foster care. And so when they go into that crisis mode, there's other people that can step in and help lead that. And you don't lose the, the traction that you have. And so that's the most healthy way to do that. And we have a pastoral lead on that campus would be our connection point with the pastor uh, or with the pastoral staff and that congregation. And so, so um, it's mostly just kind of, kind of like you were saying, like a lot of families have these nets that would right. catch their kids. Yeah, You're going like, we're trying to build out some nets that yeah. help support these families yeah. that are entering into this yeah. and encouraging them in that. So there's, there's the support group that we also do some different workshops and trainings and things yep. like that. So the different trainings, we really focus a lot on, on tra- child trauma. Um, and one of the big things that we learn is that we're a church that has a lot of foster kinship and adoptive kids in there. And so we're introduced very much in the world of trauma. And so we focus on, it's called trust-based relational intervention. It's a ton to do with connection mm-hmm. and community. And so what we realize is we're having all of these kids are showing up in your childcare ministries and how they are responding to the traditional method of a childcare day on Sunday doesn't really work for them. And so they can be really, really affected by the transitions. Every kid knows at 10.05, we walk down the road. Well, that kid's like, I don't know where I am. What if I get lost? And then they melt down and then everything falls apart. And so, yeah. And a lot of times if you're a volunteer that doesn't know any better, mm-hmm. you're experiencing a kid melting down or having a hard time yeah. or whatever. And you kind of think, Oh, this is a behavioral issue yeah. or oh, these this parents. is a, hmm. you know, yeah. And it might just be, this is a kid that's been through a lot of upheaval. Yeah. And here's these moments that are just creating more upheaval yep. mm-hmm. or more sensory overload or whatever. And yeah. so you're trying to create resources for, for families, but yeah. also even for our kids, volunteers, yeah. And our kids ministries and child paid child care at different congregations yep. to be able to try to equip some of those folks yeah. to be able to better care for kids. Yep. And what I find too, is that like we hardly ever do it through foster care, kinship and adoption. Like I try mm. not to lead that um, event because the truth of it is 
those are all your kids in childcare. Like when you try and take the little three-year-old, when you try to hand the kid over, where we used to hand them over those doors, I don't know, they, they would get handed over and it's like, oh my gosh, my mom is offering me to this strange person <laughs> and now I can't see her. Um, that's, that could be any kid. That could be your biological kid and he's still going to have a hard time with that. And so what we really try and talk about is how do we prepare you for things? There's big T trauma and there's little T trauma and that's every kid in your childcare ministry. And so when you have the skills to respond to a kid where when they're melting down and you sit down on the floor with them and you don't touch them because they have sensory issues, but you sit next to them and you listen, the kid's going to take 15 minutes to calm down anyway. You can calm it down by sitting with him or you can call his parents. Mm. And our goal is never to have to call the parents. And so to empower childcare workers. And then we're doing a training for youth ministry leaders because you guys get that trauma. Like it's very, whatever's coming is coming fast and it's not, it's through our ministry because we're trained in that, mm -hmm. but it really is just global knowledge mm. for anyone who works with kids. Well, when I think about this ministry, I, I don't know that we've, you and I have talked about this before, but I kind of think about sort of past, present and future reasons why I think this ministry is really, really important. So a past one is if you just look at the history of the early church, mm -hmm. Part of what made Christianity so compelling was the way that that the early Christians cared for the discarded yeah. uh, children and babies, uh, children left to exposure. You yep. know, abortion was less common. It was usually they were born and then just left. Yeah, and it was the Christians who rallied. and And part of what showed the unbelieving world, like, wow, there's something to this, was the sacrificial love of of people for orphans and so i love that we talked about the present reality just that we are adopted by god and so yeah. we image this but i think about the future reality i mean a lot of us as we uh pray for you know justice in our world one of the things we pray for is that uh, abortion would no longer be a thing in yeah. our country and um, we'd love for that to go away and if that goes away one of the things that i know is christians are gonna have to step up to really care for children and to care for women and to do that. Yeah. And, and so I feel like, um, you know, that may not happen. It might happen. I mean, who knows, but either way, this kind of a ministry is, I think it's doing good now. And I think it's preparing the church to be an even stronger witness in the years to come. Well, and I look at that too. I have a lot, I mean, I'm totally pro-life and I want to tell, like when people tell me we need to get rid of abortion or we need to stop abortion. I'm like, awesome. I got an orientation next week. Like come yeah. talk to me. Cause I'm not going to tell you you have to take a kid, but if you're willing to stand up for life, it's going to extend into what I need help with because I need childcare workers who understand trauma. I yep. need all that kind of stuff. And I think that's the beauty of it is that we're just innately created to do this. Mm. So, And we're innately created as families. Like I think yeah. when you ask like what can people do, because a lot of older people are like, well, I, I can't take a kid in, you know, I for um for really legitimate reasons and i'm like yeah but i got kids who need grandparents like mm. when my kid is spending time with dave's parents or nick's spending time with my parents we have to go through a transition phase when i pick her up where we sit in a room and i <laughs> reintroduce her to her mother who uses the word no periodically <laughs> right. um because that has not been sure. the vernacular for the last two hours uh -huh. and there is something special about being Mm -hmm. the grandchild of a grandparent who mm -hmm. didn't realize that suckers for breakfast, <laughs> like that didn't happen. Um, and so I look at that and I'm like, you just being a grandparent to sure. a kid, um, I got it, I got it covered for you. You got to yeah. want to do this. I got a lot of stuff for you. Yeah. Well, Kirsten, I, I just, I think it's beautiful. I, I don't think I, 
I mean, I knew you came from a kind of a loving home. I don't think I had connected the dots even about yeah. how much that prepared you for different things. I think about, you know, you having a background in special ed, you working with a lot of athletes from different backgrounds, helping them navigate a challenging system. And I just think it, there is so much in your story that really has prepared you to lead this in the season. And I'm just thankful for the leadership that you've provided to this and um, the way that we talk a lot about ways that we think redemption is better together. And I, and I know that this is one of those ways. And so thank you. You I I think like I'm grateful for that. I think the big thing is, is that sometimes um, I, I couldn't do this job without redemption. Um, I had a conversation with another big, big church in the Valley and they were trying to determine whether or not it was wise to pay someone to do the volunteer job that I was doing at that church. And it is surprising to me like how much redemption invests in caring in this way to be able to be part of the advent offering to be able to to be a line item on the budget to be able to pay a person we we have three people that work for me so it's me and um, Darcy Wilcoxon um, does yep. the mobilization piece here and then Lauren Artino does our admin and so you pay not just me but redemption pays three additional people to do this and just the countless hours of people volunteering and stuff like that. And so I, it, it, I accept the thanks on behalf of yeah. the ministry, but there's no way mm. if redemption didn't have a view into kingdom life, this would even exist. And it wouldn't exist. Ministries like this exist for two, two years mm. and then everybody burns out and they're done. But your commitment as a whole is something that isn't replicated very often in a church. Yeah. So thank you guys. Well, and I think that's a thank you to everyone listening, right? Mm, I mean, people totally. that don't even understand as they give and as they participate in the life of the church, they're supporting this. Yeah. So, um, so Kirsten, thanks. Thanks for being here. Thanks thank for uh, being part of this. Fun to go um, through my childhood again. Oh, yeah, right. I mean, Call and, my parents uh, when I get done and say thanks. <laughs> you should. I will. You I should. Will. And say, hey, lay off the suckers for breakfast. Yeah. Uh, I for called them this morning. I told them I was doing this. I asked them to pray. And I got texts from every one of my family. And wow. it was, I'll, I'll call them. That's your dad standing at, three, at, at the, the 300, 300 meter mark. mark. It totally you got it. is. Yep. Whistling. Yep. So that's, totally. I, uh, man, I can't tell you how much I love that picture. So thanks for being here. And uh, everybody, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.